0: Bullseye with Jesse Thorne is a production of MaximumFun.org and is distributed by NPR.
1: It's Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. My guest, the musician Bill Withers, was born in a place called Slab Fork, West Virginia. He grew up in a town next door called Beckley.
2: The music industry seemed a long way away. It wasn't some place where you could have long-range dreams. Not for me, anyway. There was nothing that suited me there. I mean, uh, everybody worked in the coal mines. and uh, in, in other words, you can't aspire to certain things in certain places because they don't exist. You know, now if I go around, people say, what advice do you have to young people that want to be in show business? First of all, you got to get out of here. Nobody's going to come in and get you. It ain't here, you know. So it's rare that people leave there and become me. You have to have a broader vision and a bigger dream. It's bullseye.
1: Coming up, I'll talk to the man who brought the world songs like "Lean On Me," "Lovely Day," and "Just the Two of Us," and he'll call me out on my gotcha journalism.
2: Something's got to be wrong with you. Something's probably wrong with you for even asking me some stuff like that.
1: Fair point. No, it's probably <laughs> you true. Know what I mean? <laughs> I'm a broken man, <laughs> yes. <It's> Mr. Withers. <laughs> Bill Withers and I will talk about talent, determination and why he wouldn't dance. Then later, I'll talk to Joe Randazzo. He's drawn on his years of experience as a comedian, writer, and producer to compile his new book, Funny on Purpose, The Definitive Guide to an Unpredictable Career in Comedy. It includes advice from lots of brilliant comedy people and a few unexpected ones, like the hip-hop mogul Damon Dash. For a hot minute, Randazzo worked for it. One of his protégés was like, oh, man, I'm so
3: tired. And Damon Dash is like, I've been tired for 10 years. <laughs> and he was like, you have to be tired if you want to be successful.
1: Plus, I'll tell you about a great American hero, a kid speller named Harry Altman. That's all coming up on Bullseye. Let's go. It's Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. Bill Withers is real. His greatest songs have huge universal feelings at their heart, but they feel like he's just talking to you. He ably manages the trick at the heart of pop songwriting. Fred Rogers used to talk about it in a different context. It's to be deep and simple. Here he is singing Ain't No Sunshine on his 1972 album Live at Carnegie Hall.
4: Wonder this time where she's gone Uh, If she's gone to stay Ain't no sunshine
1: Withers started recording when he was already in his 30s, and he'd quit by the time he was 50. In between, he made indelible records like Lean on Me, Lovely Day, and Just the Two of Us, among many others. Withers was recently inducted into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame, but when he was there, he let Stevie Wonder and John Legend do almost all of the singing. On October 1st, there will be a tribute concert to Withers at Carnegie Hall featuring D'Angelo, among many other artists. Bill Withers, it is great to get to talk to you again. Uh, well, thank welcome. you, bud. Yeah. So um, how does it feel when you listen to um, yourself sing live 40 years ago?
2: About like it does when I look at uh, my third grade <laughs> class picture. You know, it's it's something that's that I used to be or used to do. First of all, I don't look like that anymore. And uh, I probably don't sound like that anymore, you know. I know I don't feel like that anymore. I feel like when I look
1: at a picture of myself in third grade, it is a struggle for me to relate to a picture that old. And it's a little bit different from looking at something from, like, I'm in my mid-30s. Like, if I looked at a picture of myself when I was 22... I feel like i that's something I recognize more than me as an 8-year-old. Like, I barely remember me as an 8-year-old. Yeah. Do you have that kind of distance from your career as a performer?
2: I have more distance than you have years from my <laughs> career as a performer.
1: you Your last record came out in the mid-'80s.
2: Right, 85. I was born in 81, so I was little. Yeah, yeah. I've never not heard myself, you know, uh fortunately that stuff plays still (laughs) so uh i've never known it any other way so you know when you were a kid did you sing yeah anybody who sings sang all their life you know it's not something you start doing uh you know you may start doing it for a living or you may start doing it for other people or in a different context, but people who sing, sing as little kids, everybody. Where'd you sing? Wherever I was, wherever I felt like it, you know. I didn't have that organized, you know, where people have plays and all. I wasn't in any of that stuff. I was a severe stutterer until I was 30. So my social life was limited by that or probably dictated by that, you know. I didn't want to take the risk of rejection, so I basically left people alone. They did what they did, and I didn't expect to be included, you know. I only thought about growing up and getting out of there. My whole purpose was to leave where I was. I uh, I would go to the movies, and I would see other things to fantasize about, you know. I knew I didn't want to be a grown-up in that environment. There was nothing that suited me there. I mean, uh, everybody worked in the coal mines, and uh, there were coal miners, school teachers, and the occasional doctor or something, you know. It was
1: literally a company town where you grew
2: up, right? So that it was was sort of a closed... Part of the time. The other time, I grew up in a town of about 15,000, so... uh, you know, it was uh, it was what it was. In, in other words, you can't aspire to certain things in certain places because they don't exist. You know, now if I go around, people say, what advice do you have to young people that want to be in show business? First of all, you got to get out of here. Nobody's going to come in and get you. It ain't here, you know. So it's rare that people leave there and become me. You have to have a broader vision and a bigger dream. Did you have a broader vision
1: and a bigger dream uh, even when you were a kid or a teenager? Or could you just
2: see that the the step was to leave town? Yeah, I knew I was better than they thought I was. And I had become accustomed to not expecting any approval or any encouragement or anything, you know. They were all gaga over the high school football game. Well, none of those guys were going to play in the NFL, but I knew that if I got a chance that I could play on the big stage, you know what I mean? You can't be major league and think minor league, you know. And this is one business... You don't get into by accident. If you're in this business, believe me, you tried. You auditioned. You bounced back from rejection. You took on the uh, competition. Think about it. This is a worldwide competition. Everybody in the world is competing for the same piece of pie. So if you're going to play in this game, you'll find out, but you got to put yourself on the line, you know.
1: When you say that they didn't think that you could do it, who's included in that? I mean, kids in the high school. Everybody
2: that I was around. I mean, I had no family telling me, you know, that there was anything special about me. I had nobody even suggesting to me that I could. That's why it's fun that I am, because I can look back on them and say, boy, you guys, (laughs) you guys got it all wrong, man. You know what I mean? and i can be you know <laughs> so it's kind of fun for me you know not to be arrogant about it but it's kind of fun you know to say yeah you thought everybody else was cool you know so uh yeah so any anything you try if you try you know if you're going to play on in the big leagues you got to have some perseverance you got to have something you got to bring something to the table out of the whole world, all the people that want to do this, what separates the ones that do from the ones that don't, there's a little luck, there's a little happenstance, there's a little this. But you can't discount perseverance, you know, you can't discount that. It's Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. My guest is Bill Withers.
1: When you stuttered as a kid, how did it manifest itself? Was it all the time?
2: Most of the time, yeah. Yeah. I figured out that my stutter was a fear of the perception of the listener. And fear doesn't take any days off. So the way I dealt with it was to try to raise my opinion of myself and without being a jerk about it, lowering my opinion of other people. <laughs> <laughs> you know, or at least bringing it into some kind of reasonable thing, you know.
1: But, I mean, I can't imagine that you had that figured out when you were 10.
2: No, that's why I didn't stop stuttering until I was 30,
1: <laughs> you know. So what did you think was going on when you were 10? I mean, did, did anyone even tell you, like, this is what stuttering is?
2: No, well, people, hey, man, people are cruel, you know. They can't wait to tell you. They, you know, they just make fun of you. And then they have all these home remedies, like, especially in the South like that, you know. uh, If they hit you in the face with a dish rag or all kinds of stupid stuff, you know.
1: Did you tell people about your dreams? Were there people in your life that knew that you wanted to...
2: No, that's the dumbest thing you can do uh, Depending, unless you have very supportive people around. I took my first album cover picture on my lunch break in the factory where I was working. And guys were laughing, hey, Hollywood. Well, six months later, they were all asking me for a job. So, it, you know, you can't base your aspirations on what somebody else thinks. If you are lucky enough to have people that are pushing you in the back good, I only had tailwinds, you know back then. I only had tailwinds, and the older I got, the less likely I was going to get some some support. you know it's bull'seye I'm Jesse Thorne, my guest is
1: Bill Withers. He's headed to Carnegie Hall on October 1st for a tribute show that features D'Angelo and a lot of other brilliant people. Tickets for the show are on sale now. Here's a song from his 1972 album, Live at Carnegie Hall. It's called Hope She'll Be Happier.
4: And the lateness Of the hour Makes me seem blue hope she'll be happier with
1: him. It's Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. I'm talking to Bill Withers. You were in the service for a long time after high school, right?
2: Yeah, nine years, yeah.
1: So was the thing keeping you in the service that you had made a commitment, uh, or was it that you weren't ready to do the next thing?
2: I was probably hiding in there, you know. It was an easy thing to do, and uh, I didn't have that many other options that I could see, you know. And uh, not having been fed a whole lot of self-esteem from outside sources, I was, you know, trying to figure it out. Then when I got to California, I said, okay, I can do California.
1: What made you say that?
2: Because it's California. <laughs> you know, was I, If I had gone back to West Virginia, how would I have gotten into the music business? Where would I have gone? There is no music business there. You
1: mentioned that you stopped stuttering uh, around 30,
2: and that's about the same time that you started recording. Um, no, it was later than that. I started recording about 32 or something like that. But, it, you know, one had nothing to do with the other one.
1: Well, what changed for you in that period of your life that you felt like you could have that kind of combination of self-worth and uh, not being afraid of what other people think?
2: No, I was born feeling that way. I just had to get around to doing it, you know. Like I say, people don't start singing. it. You know, you're born, when you come out of the womb, you hear stuff. You know, it's like people who can run fast. They're born that way. You're born with that facility. Now, uh, getting around to doing it, you know, there are a lot of things that come into play. Environment, uh, opportunity, uh, you know. I knew what I was all my life. I knew what I thought I was. A lot of people think they are. Not everybody is. The people that are in this business are really the difference between people who thought they were and couldn't and people who thought they were and could. When you were first
1: recording demos, and the the first demos that you recorded, as I understand it, were sessions that you paid for out of your pocket that you had to save for. Yeah, all of them. Did you think you were recording songwriting demos or singer demos?
2: I was recording something for somebody else to hear. You know, I wasn't recording things for somebody else to sing. You know, it was for me. I wanted somebody to hear me. If I wanted to be in the music business, I figured I had to go in the music business. And the easiest way is to record yourself and say, here, listen to this.
1: Did you say, here, listen to this, in person with anyone? Was there anybody who said, okay, let's throw this this on the
2: reel-to-reel? Always. I never send anything to anybody UPS. It's only practical to present it yourself. What are you going to do, have somebody else do it? You know, that's one more, that's one unnecessary step in the process. That's scary, though. Plus, how would you interest them? What's scary? To show
1: up with what you've got and say, it's a lot easier to mail it to somebody, (laughs) or at the very least to walk up, shake hands with them, put it in their hand and walk away, than it is to stand there and say, okay, let's press play.
2: (laughs) You know what? It's like, if you're that afraid, you need to get a job at, you know, McDonald's or somewhere, or wherever you can, because if you have that kind of fear, you know, probably fear keeps more people out of this business than anything else. So so, so some people that have immense talent are too afraid, and some people that have no talent are unafraid. So if you're afraid to shoot your shot, you out of the game anyway. You just took yourself out of the game. Is fear part
1: of what's kept you out of the business for the last thirty years or so?
2: No, no, no. I I haven't been out of the business. Well, you've been you, substantially you, out of business. You've, you written, you've written
1: you've written some songs for people, and you've you've done a little bit of recording here and there. But for the most part,
2: yeah. But it's hard to drive around all day without hearing something that I did.
1: I'll continue my conversation with Bill Withers after a break. We'll talk about why he didn't dress up on stage or dance like a lot of his contemporaries. It's Bullseye from MaximumFun.org and NPR.
0: I know you love listening to Bullseye, so I think you should check out the first episode of NPR's new Hidden Brain podcast. Shankar Vedantam explores a conversational phenomenon called switch tracking. When two people think they are talking about the same thing, but in reality are speeding down separate tracks. It usually doesn't end well. The Hidden Brain podcast premieres September 22nd. Subscribe now on the NPR One app, iTunes, or npr.org slash podcasts, and don't miss an episode.
4: Welcome to Oh No, Ross and Carrie. Ross. Hi, Carrie.
0: What do you think is creepier? Okay. You jump into a swimming pool. All of a sudden, the water goes away. And instead of water, there is the bones of your dead ancestors. Ew. Or Mm -hmm. our show
4: that's pretty tough because we've visited a live exorcism.
0: We joined the Ordo Templi Orientis where we had to worship a naked lady. Oh, and
4: we joined that Tony Alamo cult. They were scary. Super
0: creepy. We joined the Ethere Society.
4: We tried penis enlargement or at least I did. Oh
0: boy, I tried breast enlargement. We have basically done every creepy weird fringe thing except for thousands more which we will get to if you listen to our show.
4: I'd still say the swimming pool with my ancestors' bones.
0: Well, then I don't even know if people should listen.
4: I guess they shouldn't.
0: But if you want We're at Maximum Fun, and the show's called I Know Ross and Carrie.
1: It's Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. My guest is Bill Withers. There's going to be a tribute concert to him October 1st at Carnegie Hall. Here's a bit from his 1972 album, Live at Carnegie Hall. His song, Grandma's Hands.
4: Grandma's hands Grandma's, hands.
1: Grandma's hands. When you got your first record deal, as I understand it, you hadn't really done much performing um and especially not, you know, headline performing come see Bill Withers. Um
2: did you enjoy it? When you started, <laughs> did you did you like it? I don't think there's anybody in the world playing music that doesn't like it. It's something you start doing because you like it, you know. I'm going to be playing at the Troubadour Saturday night. You know, I hope some people show up, and I'm looking forward to it. That's it.
1: The producer of your first record was Booker T. Jones. Yeah. Um, Famously at Booker T. and the MGs and instrumentalists on a thousand great stacks records and so on and so forth. What did you learn from working with him when you were, I mean, you know, you were like a guy.
2: I learned the studio recording process. And I learned how to manage musicians in the studio. I learned a lot from Booker, you know, because it was the first time I'd been in that situation. And he was very nice to me.
1: Did he feel like he believed in you?
2: If he didn't, why would he do it? (laughs) You know? People take take jobs for a lot of reasons. I'm going to go down here and make this record with this guy, but I don't think it's going to happen. Come on, man. That's not even a, that's not even a, uh, no. No, it doesn't work like that. So what did that mean to you as a guy who had...
1: You know, spent the first 30 years of his life feeling like he had to prove himself against people.
2: I felt the same way. I had to prove myself against people again. And if I was to do it now, I'd have to prove myself against people. This is a prove-yourself-against-people business.
1: What part of it did you enjoy the most?
2: The part I started doing, you know, playing the music, you know, it was, it was, uh, you know... I enjoyed a lot of things that I'm not going to tell you about because it's not appropriate. But your wife's sitting right there. Oh, uh, you know, she's she's got a radio. So if she was in Philadelphia, it would be the same situation. <laughs> you know,
1: she has what I could charitably describe as an understanding smile on her face right now.
2: Yeah, she has no choice. What she's going to do? Come in here. <laughs> you know.
1: <laughs> You know, the first time we spoke, you were talking about uh, the movie Soul Power, which was a documentary that was shot at the Ali Foreman fight, and it was 1975 in Zaire, 74, something like that. And the bill on this show was, um, there was a big concert surrounding this fight. Sure. And you performed on the show. Uh, James Brown was there. uh, The Fania All-Stars were there. The Spinners were there. I can't name every single act that was on there, but it was a pretty amazing lineup, right? And I was thinking the other day about that show and thinking like, you know, Celia Cruz is coming out in front of the Fania All-Stars and she's wearing a Celia Cruz outfit, you know, I don't remember specifically, but probably like a 10-foot feather on her head. And the spinners are, by that point, you know, they'd had whatever it was, 10 years at Motown and five years out of Motown and Uh, You know, they can all sing their butts off, but they're also all wearing these amazing outfits and doing these moves and so on and so forth. And then James Brown is, uh, you know, at the peak of being the GFOS, the godfather of soul, you know, with a jumpsuit that has a name on it and the whole nine yards, right? And you're out there with a guitar. And I wonder if when you, especially when you started, but also when you chose to continue that way if you thought of the ways that you were different from what else was out there. And I don't mean that in a bad way, but
2: that... Let me give you something to consider. Mm -hmm. All those acts you've mentioned, great acts, right? Sure. I was probably the only person that you could take his songs without the music and read it from the printed page. So I was, my thing was more about content than context. I mean, I wasn't going to dance because I don't know if I can or not. It doesn't suit my personality. In the environment that I grew up in, it was condescending to dance. It was almost like Tommen or something, you know. So I wasn't going to do that because my my socialization wouldn't allow it, you know. I wasn't going to wear a purple suit because my socialization wouldn't allow it. Those were clown clothes. So that wasn't my path. My path was trying to be taken seriously as a thinking person. You know, when I was in the Navy, I was an aircraft mechanic. They desegregated the Navy in 1948. I went in in 1956. That ain't very far. That's eight years up the road. How difficult do you think it was for us to convince somebody that we could work on an airplane, even though it consisted mostly of draining oil out of the damn thing? But the way people put you down is they have an exalted opinion of themselves. So part of having an exalted opinion of yourself is you have to claim that other people are intellectually inferior to you. And a great part of my life was dealing with that demon, you know. So, uh, no, I, I wouldn't wear a purple suit and dance around because that didn't prove any of the points I wanted to prove but if I could write music with some content to it I get letters where people say I buried my grandfather and we played lean on me or you know we got married I used just the two of us you know what I mean you can't bury nobody off of Papa's got a brand new bag. Now, I love James Brown. He's my man. But that's not what I was doing. He wanted to dance around and do the splits. One of the biggest troubles I almost got into when I went to a new record company is they had a convention, and uh, there were two acts that were out in the middle of the floor, two black acts, of course, and they were dancing, and everybody was gathering around in the circle, clapping hands and this guy started pushing me by my elbows and says, get out there and dance for us. I said, I'm going to dance off in your ass if you don't get your hands off of me. (laughs) So that's just not my way. I don't walk like that.
1: It's Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. I'm talking to Bill Withers. He's the singer and songwriter behind classic tracks like Lovely Day and Just the Two of Us. Here's a little bit of his 1972 hit, Lean On Me, from his record live at Carnegie Hall.
4: Some times in our life We are
1: Seems like, you know, for a lot of people, the reason they become a performer or an entertainer is that they want to get some reaction out of
2: people. That they want to. That's the only reason anybody does it. It's but called, it's, it's called show business. It should be called the showing off business. You do it for attention. Otherwise, you could go play in your closet. I mean, why go to Carnegie Hall? Did something change in
1: the part of the equation that is how much uh, you
2: want and enjoy that? I don't know, you know. I'm me. I've never been anybody else. All I know how to do is be me. We do what we have options to do. I had different options. I've never wanted to be some old gray-haired guy up at 2 o'clock in the morning trying to entertain some people. That's because I have the option to do it. If I didn't have that option, hey, man, I'd probably be booked in some place on the road to Lake Tahoe tonight.
1: What do you think of most fondly from your career as a as a, you know in recording and performing
2: you know probably James Gadson's garage before anybody knew who anybody was we're just over there having fun playing you know because the genesis as a whole thing is you play music because you like it and probably the most enjoyable times you'll ever have doing it is when you're doing it purely because you love it and there's no other onus placed on it. I once had a friend who invited me over to his house and he had barbecued. And I said, man, you should probably open up a barbecue joint. He says, I like cooking and I don't want to screw it up. He says, I already screwed up music by doing that for a living.
1: Do you still get that kind of pleasure out of music?
2: I don't know. I haven't done it in a while. You know? Because I can never go back to that.
1: I mean, James Katz has been playing with (laughs) D'Angelo.
2: Yeah, and Buzz Aldrin, you know, went to Tennessee last week. What's that got to do with me? (laughs) You know what I mean?
1: (laughs) I'm just saying you have the option. You
2: can be a great drummer longer than you can be a great singer. You know, you can lift weights longer than you can run track. Some things are have a a, a, a certain life to them. You know, Tom Lair, the uh, uh, comic singer-songwriter,
1: had a line. He made a couple records that were bestsellers in the early '60s, and then has not. Uh, recorded since then he's still around in Santa Cruz he has a great line where he says what's the use of having laurels if you don't rest on them yeah (laughs) um you know when you are getting honored in this concert for example in New York do you enjoy that
2: no man who would want to be honored by a bunch of people who would want that who would want to be honored by a bunch of a bunch of people that admire you and are very nice to you. Nah, come on, man. It would be a waste of energy to go around disliking things that are pleasant and flattering. Think about that. Something's got to be wrong with you. Something's probably wrong with you for even asking me some stuff like that.
1: Fair point. No, it is probably <laughs> <You> know, true.
2: <laughs> I'm a broken man, <laughs> <Yes>. Mr. Withers. <laughs> well,
1: I'm really grateful that you took the time to come back uh, on the show. I'm well. i to get to talk to you. I'll
2: ask this last question because sure. they always ask me this: sure. What do you want your legacy to be? I didn't ask you that, though, Mr. Withers. No, but it was coming. You heard no,
1: you so, no. It was not listen. coming. I so, chose all of the questions I that I know. asked. Well, I chose an, not I'm to an ask that one anyway. I already know I what my
2: legacy is going to be. I'm living it. No, I'm kidding. <laughs> I'm giving you
1: Well, thank you very much. It's really an honor to, get to have you on the show. Thank you. I mean that for thank you.
2: No, no problem.
1: <laughs> Bill Withers, a tribute show in his honor, is happening October 1st at Carnegie Hall, featuring performances from D'Angelo, Aloe Black, Michael McDonald, Ledisi, and Gregory Porter, among many, many others. The show benefits the Stuttering Association for the Young. Tickets are available on Carnegie Hall's website. On our way out, why don't we listen to one more little bit of Bill Withers' 1972 album, Live Flaming, at Carnegie Hall. Here's the outro Ned, Lame, the
4: Wants a big fat donation Send some old jive preacher to the holy land Lord, honey Don't you give your money To that lying, cheating man Come here today by Harlem Harlem
1: Harlem It's Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. Joe Randazzo has been an improviser, a stand-up comedian, the editor of The Onion, the head of a web video startup for Cartoon Network's Adult Swim. Now he's the head writer of Comedy Central's At Midnight. That's most of the jobs you can have in comedy. His new book explains how to get them, plus a bunch of others. It's called Funny on Purpose, A Definitive Guide to an Unpredictable Career in Comedy. Joe Randazzo, welcome to Bullseye. Thanks for having me. So here's the thing, Joe. My understanding is that people hate anyone who teaches anyone how to be in comedy in a nice way and hate anyone who ever took a class or tried to learn something in any other way other than the school of hard knocks.
3: Uh huh. <laughs> I think that's traditionally been the approach. Uh, there's this kind of uh, secret society of comedians who, because everybody's route is a little bit different and everybody's own personal demons are a little bit different. And there's this kind of ethos, especially I think among stand-up comedians, of you can't take any shortcuts. That maybe that kind of an idea of here's how you can do it um, represents a, a sort of disgusting
1: shortcut. I think people, people sort of want to share their suffering.
3: Yeah, I want to share your suffering and you must have endured suffering of your own. That is calculated and um, can be compared to the suffering of others. You went to
1: broadcasting school. You thought you were going to be a broadcaster?
3: <laughs> yeah, I mean, I, I always wanted to be in comedy, but it seemed like the kind of thing that would never be possible because there was no book for it. And also there was no major or or anything like that in comedy, although Emerson College, where I went, I think if they haven't yet, they're going to soon start a comedy major, which I don't know if that's cool or dumb.
1: It seems like the way that most people get into comedy is they get the idea that they're going to get into comedy, and they start hanging around somewhere. Yeah. Was that your experience?
3: Um, yeah, I think so. I didn't have the foresight to recognize that as a actual technique that does work. Um, but I, uh, I was dating um, a woman who was a stand-up and did improv in New York, and she recommended that I... Start taking improv classes. So I went to this place called the Magnet Theater in New York, um, which seemed a little less clicky to me than the UCB. Although if I'd done the UCB, I'd be on Parks and Rec right now. Although that show just got canceled. <laughs> um, and I started doing improv. I started doing improv there, and it was like immediately a huge relief and release, and just really enriching and felt wonderful and was unlike anything I'd ever done before. And it also s- happened that. Some of the people in my class, one of them was the was a former editor in chief of The Onion. One of them was a an editor at that time. And then um, so it's Carol Kolb and Amy Baradale and then Carol's boyfriend, Tony Kameen, who's also a great stand up comedian. So all these people were in my class. I didn't know who they were or anything, but sort of meeting them and getting to know them and and, and developing my own sense of, uh, you know, self-confidence in comedic ability Uh, it was a great way to to start and sort of just get a sense of like, oh, this is something that people can do because here are these people. I know them. We get up on stage together and have fun. And how did they get into it? And how did this all work out for them? And then eventually Amy left to go to India, and she recommended me for the job at The Onion because I'd been submitting headlines for a few months before that. And I tested for it. I test edited a story and then got the job.
1: In what ways was The Onion what you imagined it would be and in what ways was it different?
3: Well, I think one of the things about The Onion, especially in these days, this would have been 2006, so it was kind of before social media was all anyone ever did and when there was still some mystery to certain things in the world, unlike now when nothing is mysterious anymore. No one knew anything about The Onion. Nobody knew. I didn't know who was involved. I didn't know who wrote it. You know, there's no bylines. It's just this sort of overpowering, omniscient voice. So I just imagined that it would be – I I pictured everyone being a little bit older than they were, and I pictured everyone being a little bit meaner than they were just because there's that sense of mystery to it. And so just naturally, I assume if I don't know someone, they're mean, Uh (laughs) right? And they're probably better than me. And I'm probably a sham, and they'll probably figure that out very quickly, um, which the audience is doing with us now. Um, and then, <laughs> and it was it was a uh, it was as I imagined in that it was um, very fun and very uh, very everybody was very funny, and it was just it was pretty exciting, you know, because it was we were still set to the. Um, the weekly publication schedule in those days. So even though we were publishing online, we still it was still like putting out a weekly newspaper. So there was this sense of deadline and there was this sense of, you know, rushing news items and on on big news days it was actually pretty exciting because we would have to rearrange things and emergency pitch headlines to address the death of somebody or uh, some horrible tragedy or whatever. So that that part of it was really exciting kind of tied to the aspect of news that I really enjoyed.
1: Were you doing stand-up at the time?
3: Uh, on and off, yeah. But I, I pretty much, I mean, my job was assistant editor. I, that was the job I came in having, and it was very all-encompassing for me. So that's when I sort of started uh, relaxing the amount of stand-up that I did.
1: Was it difficult for you to uncouple uh, funniness from performance? How do you mean? Well, I mean, if you have an idea for a joke as a stand up or as an improviser, it comes from your voice and is expressed in a way that uh, only you would express it through a set of performance skills. Um, when you are writing for uh, The Onion or for At Midnight, you are either writing for someone else's voice or for an institutional voice mm-hmm. in the case of The Onion. And they are, you know, At Midnight is going to be performed, but, um, you know, The Onion, there's no performance involved.
3: Yeah, I mean, I think that's one of the reasons why I um, was able to sort of rise up at The Onion and, you know, maybe part of the reason why I have the job I have now, which is I can sort of, not that I can necessarily mimic a voice, but I think I very quickly grasp the key components of a voice and can actually, I think I'm a little better at making other people's jokes fit that voice and sort of giving something, giving a, a complete issue of The Onion or a complete episode of At Midnight a sort of holistic feel and kind of intrinsically understand what does or does not feel on voice um, after a couple of years of doing this at the onion though I did get back into stand up because I felt like I was not there there were not very many opportunities for me to express myself individually uh, creatively and when you get when you 're writing headlines every week, which I did not do incidentally, um, a lot of my job was you know editing took up most of that job. I would do it sometimes but not every week. But when you are doing it with that consistency, you do start to see the world through that voice of The Onion. And that's why I think writers are so successful at pulling stuff. You know, a, a lot of the, the best headlines from The Onion are the ones I enjoy the most are sort of doing a lot of the same stuff that a good observational comedian will do. is just pull something banal from your everyday life and blow it up into a news headline with some fresh or interesting angle.
1: I'll finish my conversation with Joe Randazzo after a break. He'll talk about the epitaph he commissioned from Deep Thoughts creator, Jack Handy. It's Bullseye for MaximumFun.org and NPR.
0: I know you love listening to Bullseye, so I think you should check out the first episode of NPR's new Hidden Brain podcast. Shankar Vedantam explores a conversational phenomenon called switch tracking— When two people think they are talking about the same thing, but in reality are speeding down separate tracks, it usually doesn't end well. The Hidden Brain podcast premieres September 22nd. Subscribe now on the NPR One app, iTunes, or npr.org slash podcasts, and don't miss an episode.
4: Hey
3: everyone, we're the Flophouse, one of the newest additions to the Maximum Fun Podcasting Network.
2: I'm Dan McCoy. I'm Stuart Wellington. And I'm Elliot Kalin.
4: What is the Flophouse,
2: you may very well ask? We watch a bad movie, and then we talk about it. A bad movie podcast?
4: Isn't that like every fifth podcast on the internet?
3: I'd answer that by saying, one, we've been doing this show for over seven years, long before the entire premise of our show was a cliche, and two,
4: shut up. Sick burn. I'd say that our show is more of a comedy podcast, a podcast about words that sound like other words, a podcast about me singing long, irritated songs like this one, a podcast about pitches for a Ziggy comic book movie, or discussions about sex tarps.
3: Yeah, I mean, mostly it's a show about three friends just
2: hanging out and talking about ding-dongs. That's mostly used to.
3: Wait, what? So, if you like any of those things, subscribe in iTunes today or visit
2: MaximumFun.org to follow the show.
4: The Flophouse! Woo! It's Bullseye.
1: I'm Jesse Thorne. My guest is Joe Randazzo. He's the head writer of Comedy Central's At Midnight, the former editor of The Onion, and the author of a new book called Funny on Purpose, The Definitive Guide to an Unpredictable Career in Comedy. I get the impression as an outsider that when The Onion moved its comedy offices from New York to Chicago a couple of years ago and um, lost many of the People who had worked there for a long time because they were not prepared to move to a different city. It was really rough on the people involved. Yeah, it was, uh,
3: it was difficult. It was difficult because the business side of The Onion had been in Chicago for many years and the creative side of The Onion had been in New York for many years. And just over time, communication had kind of calcified in general. So the, the the corporate side had their reasons for wanting to move everything to Chicago, and the creative side had their reasons for wanting to stay in New York and also had their reasons for wanting the business side to move to New York, being the capitals of comedy, advertising, and media, which are the three things that The Onion is involved in. Um, so it was a difficult process um, with a lot of sort of miscommunications on both sides, and for a lot of the people who worked at The Onion, it's the only job they'd ever had. You know, some some, some people who were from Madison, where The Onion started, went from working part-time at a liquor store or being unemployed in their basement to working for The Onion and then within a few years moving to New York and being this highly lauded, celebrated, satirical publication. So for them it was more than just a matter of I don't want to move across the country. It was what's happening to this organization that I've pegged not only my career, but my adult life to. Um, You know, for me, I sort of I was I was more in the middle range where I first became a fan of The Onion after Our Dumb Century, which came out in 1999. And then after September 11th, I was just basically dedicated to The Onion. Um, So and then there are people who came in after me who are, you know, five or so years younger than me. And that five years was also a big kind of a big gap. So there were people who were working at The Onion who were who grew up wanting to work at The Onion, and then there were people working at The Onion who started The Onion and still just saw it as a kind of thing to do to f-
1: around. When you started writing this book, and my guest is Joe Randazzo, and his book is called Funny on Purpose, The Definitive Guide to an Unpredictable Career in Comedy, what were the parts of the comedy world that you, a former improviser, current television writer, uh, Onion writer, etc., 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 stand-up, knew the least about? Probably YouTube, the, the sort of technical side
3: of podcasting. And by technical, I don't just mean how it, f- it doesn't physically do anything really, right? How it electronically works and then sort of what are some good techniques to maintain a podcast and uh, illustration, I would say. Um, and then some of the stuff about like what do producers do in film comedy, you know, how does the business side of it work? Um, I'd say those are the areas I sort of knew the the least about. And then I was also just really interested because I have I – w- I would never call myself a stand-up comedian. I've done it on and off for many years, but I've never done it as a as a main income source. I've never been a touring comedian. You know, there's a lot of stuff. Like I, like I research and talk to people who do comedy on cruise ships, for instance, and stuff like that. Sort of find the little – alleyways that there are that other people wind up taking that you might not expect so there's a lot of that
1: stuff that i did not know about just for lack of experience one of the things that i was most kind of touched by in reading the book is the book is interspersed with interviews with people from the comedy industry um, and there's an interview with paul f tompkins the stand-up comedian and uh television host and actor and etc cetera. Um, and one of the things that Paul said it's was also a murderer. Is he? I did yeah, not we didn't I should touch have brought that up last time he was on the, the show because yeah. I've never I, I remember wonder if I put what it, in the it would be not, like but. to take a man's life. Yeah, I don't know if you. it's men or women he's killing. <laughs> um, so uh one of the things that Paul said is that you know when you are working in a career, especially in entertainment, it is very easy to think about what the next level is all the time. Mm-hmm rather than think about uh, what is nice and good about the thing that you are doing now. And when you talk about like a cruise ship comedian or something like that, what, what are the places in comedy where people make a living and find satisfaction that someone out there who doesn't work in the comedy industry might not have thought of?
3: Well, that's one of them. I think a lot of comedians do wind up writing writing. And now there's, you know, as you well know, more opportunities than ever for people to kind of create their own brand, for lack of a better word, and to kind of create their own broadcasting conglomerate, for lack of a better two words. Um, but, but I think what Paul says is extremely wise because what I found through my own personal experience and through talking to other people is that you can get success by being viciously ambitious and sort of just focused on where you are headed. But the people who seem to be the most satisfied, the people who seem to have had the most happy coincidences occur to them that lead to success are the people who support those around them, who are actively happy for their friends and colleagues when they get work. And you have to kind of train yourself to do that because jealousy, I think, for most people, is the first knee-jerk reaction one of the worst emotions but I think it's an interesting one to explore when you experience it. And I talk about in the book how important it is, especially when you're starting out in comedy um, and this is particularly uh, for performative comedy, to make friends with other people who are doing it and to take an active interest in how they're doing because you need them because you're going to be filled with times of failure and times of self-doubt and times of you know, tears, uh, and, uh, and poverty. And if you can provide support for those people, they'll provide it for you. And whether or not you wind up where you think you want to wind up, if you're able to kind of stop every once in a while, as Paul says, and look at where you are, if you've been honest with yourself and been supportive of others, you'll find that you're part of a great community doing something that you love. And if you're lucky, um, making a, career out of it um, i wish i could think of more individual uh comedy cubby holes where people are are making money that like you asked
1: about. well people i mean people who make you mentioned youtube people who make vines and youtubes as a profession uh it's like a magic trick to me and i'm a literally a comedy new media entrepreneur yeah <laughs> like the idea that that's someone's job is amazing to me
3: yeah, I mean, I think, you know, I, I don't know where that magic uh, recipe comes from. I think it depends on the, on the person. I try to outline what are some good habits to get into, you know, just things like regularity and really interacting with your audience. I think the thing that's changing so much about all of that is that audiences really want to be fans of someone who they can see almost as their friend as opposed to looking at Robin Williams, say, on stage and say, I could never do that. I think people want to some degree, and it's part, part of the audience, not all of them, um, and maybe it's a generational thing. I don't know what it is, but to say, oh, I could kind of do that maybe. That person's really funny. I could see myself hanging out with them. And they kind of like a little bit if their YouTube stars are a little bit messy and dirty and, like, maybe the production value is not that high and maybe they mess up sometimes. And maybe it's not even really that funny all the way through. But you know, every Monday and Wednesday or whenever it is, that person's going to pop up and they're going to do something that you like and they may communicate with you. Um, And I think that, you know, that there are, it's not many people, but there are a growing number of people who are able to make a lot of money because they reach 20, 30, 40, 50 million people with these videos, which is even for something like Seinfeld. Uh, the You know, the greatest sitcom of the 1990s and maybe beyond, Jesse. And these people are able to do it once or twice a week.
1: If someone is 19 right now and listening to this show mm-hmm. and they want to throw their hat into the comedy ring, but they don't have any idea what is their thing, certainly they can buy a copy of Joe Randazzo's uh, Funny on Purpose, The Definitive Guide to an Unpredictable Career in Comedy. Mm-hmm what is the first step?
3: I think you just have to do something. And there are so many different ways that you can do things. You can write a Tumblr. You can just open a Twitter account. You can start making videos of some kind on YouTube. You can try to make a podcast. I think you just got to start something and then do it for a while. Stick to it and do it for a while and see if you like it. Don't worry if you're attracting a big audience right away. Don't worry if it's if it feels dumb. Just doing something with regularity will provide you with experience. It'll provide you with confidence, and you'll start to develop a voice. I think even after, even if you do, you know, something that I started doing on YouTube was um, I have a six-year-old son who's really into Legos, and he watches like thirty-five-minute-long Lego reviews of grown men who literally hold the box and say, here's the box. It's blue. You can see the back of the box here. And then they just open it and show you everything. So I started sort of doing a parody of those. And even after doing three of them, I found that I was homing in on what this character's voice really was. So I think that's something super important. And just building the discipline within yourself of saying, I'm going to do this and I'm going to complete it. And then you do that once and you feel better. You do it two times, you feel twice as good. Three times, you feel three times as good. And then you will plateau. And that's when it's really important to just sort of keep pushing. But to not really worry about what it is or or saying to yourself, oh, this is it. This is definitely it. Just doing something is helpful.
1: How do you know if you've failed?
3: I don't know. I think that's a personal thing that um, sort of like – you know what you were quoting Paul as having said and talking about, but I think you have to be able to look at your life as a whole. you know at the end of the book, I sort of end it on this exercise that I do sometimes, um, where you imagine yourself on your deathbed, and you know it's a peaceful surrounding you you're 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 in a a quiet, restful setting, and you're let's just assume that you've lived a good life and you're not about to be electrocuted for murder. Like Paul F. Tompkins probably will be someday. Should I spend the rest of the interview insinuating that Paul's a murderer or not? I
1: mean, you're pretty much explicitly saying it. You're not really insinuating. Yeah, you're right. So
3: you picture yourself on, on your deathbed and you, and you try to imagine what it is that you're looking back upon with pride or what it is that you're regretting. And I think if you can do that with yourself every once in a while as a way to sort of check in with yourself, you it gives you a chance to stop comparing yourself to others and to stop comparing yourself to an ideal that does not exist in any world and will never exist for you because it only exists in others or it exists in some sort of fictitious version of the world. Um, so being able to see that every once in a while can give you a real uh, instrument for gauging whether you're succeeding or failing. But I think if you're doing what you love to do, you feel like you're doing good work and you're surrounded by people who you like and who like you and who you feel that you can rely on for support, There's that's some degree of success. To call that failure, I think, would be ridiculous. Um, but also people need to motivate themselves in, in different ways. So I wouldn't, I wouldn't say, you know, I wouldn't argue with somebody that they're successful if they don't believe they are. But I think you have to have perspective
1: you close the book by talking about thinking about your own deathbed mm-hmm. is that something that comes naturally to you <laughs> uh yeah i mean i've always been
3: preoccupied with with death i think a lot of comedians probably have um and it's also an exercise that uh that comes out of some some buddhist training which is to, to sort of uh to think about that, you know, to have that sense of change and in infinitude, and to realize that you're not going to live forever. You don't have all the time in the world to do the things that you want to accomplish. So that gives you a sense of urgency, but also hopefully gives you a, an ability to to kind of be present and think about what you have done and what you do have.
1: You hired the probably the funniest man in the Taos, New Mexico area, Jack Handy, Um house if i'm remembering correctly somewhere in new mexico yeah he's i
3: think he might be in albuquerque
1: albuquerque there you go you hired the funniest man in the albuquerque new mexico area to write an epitaph for you Mm. um and i wonder if i wonder if you would take a second to read it it's the it's the last thing in the book sure joe randazzo the
3: world's second oldest man has died of natural causes leaving jack handy as still the world's oldest man Obituary by Jack Handy.
1: (laughs) Well, Joe Randazzo, uh, I wish you and Jack Handy the best of luck. Thank you. (laughs) Joe Randazzo is the author of Funny on Purpose, the definitive guide to an unpredictable career in comedy. It's a comprehensive guide to uh, almost every form of comedy there is and sort of how it works, uh, including interviews with many, many brilliant comedy creators ranging from... Joan Rivers to Judd Apatow to Jack Handy. And there's even one in there with a comedy podcast impresario named Jesse Thorne. Mm -hmm. Thank you, Joe. Thank you. Every week we like to close the show with a recommendation from me, your host. It's The Outshot. You know, they say there are no heroes left in American life. But I, Jesse Thorne, disagree. I have a hero. He's a kid speller. And his name is Harry Altman. The word is bands. Bands, 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 bands. There's got to be something I can think of.
0: With a D sound or without a D sound? Um, you said it's a homonym, and you told me what it means, but am I allowed to ask what its homonym means? All right, I'm starting over. B... A-N-D, what I have so far is B-A-N-D, I don't know if that was a great idea, but, oops, maybe I shouldn't have said that,
1: oh well. Harry Altman is one of the stars of Spellbound, a 2002 documentary that followed a group of kids through the Scripps National Spelling Bee. These are pretty regular kids. They're exceptional in some ways, a little smarter than average, and you know, willing to spend their free time sitting around studying how to spell stuff. But mostly they're pretty normal. In fact, the most remarkable thing about them is that they're willing to subject themselves to this crazy barrage of words.
4: Speller 21. Cultivation. Cultivation.
3: C-U-L-T-I-V-A-T-I-O-N. Cultivation.
0: Comedian C O M E D I A N.
1: Comedian P O D A N T I C. Correct spelling P E D A N T I C. Correct spelling R A
4: P P E L L E D.
1: Could I have spellers 21 and 24 to the mic? A-N-G-S-T-R-O-N-S Spelling is a pretty arbitrary skill. I mean, in 2015, it's almost archaic. So why is it so moving to see these kids struggle their way through these spelling contests? I guess the arbitrariness is kind of part of the appeal, isn't it? Sure, it doesn't really measure anything but, you know, dedication... But I think for a lot of kids, just the chance to compete in a fair fight seems special. It's not a coincidence, I don't think, that a lot of these kids are immigrants, for example.
4: You can can get a sense of belonging in America, outside of India, which you don't get anywhere else. We wanted our children to have that. They are part of this community. People accept them for who they are and can look beyond differences, you know, to find things that are common.
1: Or that some of these kids are a little weird.
4: I think this is going to open some doors for him to realize,
0: hey, there's a lot of people out there that are like me. I will be able to fit in. There may not be a lot of them, and they're not going to be.
1: When I was a kid, I actually had a friend who was in the National Spelling Bee. I was in sixth grade. He was one of the smartest kids I have ever known, but he hated school. I think it felt like a rigged game to him. And honestly, I don't think he even particularly cared about spelling. I think he just liked that in a spelling contest he knew what the rules were. He finally actually ended up on ESPN, the national finals they are televised, and he got to a word he couldn't spell and he asked all the different questions you can ask, like what part of speech is it and what language of origin does it come from and so on and so forth. And then after he got through all of those, he uh, asked the contest host if he could buy a vowel, which I thought was pretty good. It was basically the highlight of his life (laughs) up to that point. I mean... I was like a friend of mine, and it was the highlight of my life up to that point. It's so easy to empathize with these kids. It's in your brain chemistry. Some of them in Spellbound are rich, some are poor, they're different races, different genders. But the reason the climax is so exciting, the reason it's so thrilling to see a kid win that thing, is that when they win, they win fair and square. The rules are simple. Anybody can get their hands on a dictionary. It's kind of like the America we wish we had. Hard work is rewarded directly. Judging from Facebook, my friend from elementary school is ambivalent about spelling bees these days. Not just because everybody has spell checks on their computer, but because it seems like kind of a weird thing to put kids through. And I can see that. Losing is hard. Studying is boring. But... It's hard for me to tamp down my enthusiasm for this one kid from the documentary. I just read on Wikipedia that he's not a kid anymore. He grew up and got a PhD in mathematics, focusing on something called integer complexity, which is very admirable. But has a special meaning to me. I'll always love him. This one thing he says in the movie. Just a perfect sentence. All of the awkwardness and hopefulness of childhood wrapped up in a couple of words. Colin, if you would, could you play that clip?
0: Does this sound like our musical, Robot? Oh man, I love
1: that. That's my outshot. We've come to the end of another episode of Bullseye. The show is produced by Speaking Into Microphones. Our producer is Julia Smith. Production fellow at Maximum Fund is a body and Senior producer is Colin Anderson. All our interstitial music is provided by Dan Wally. Our thanks to the Go Team and to their label, Memphis Industries, for our theme music. As far as I'm concerned, you should run out and check out the Go Team's records. If you'd like to hear any of our past shows, you can. They're all free. Just go to MaximumFun.org and click on Bullseye. And if you want to hear more about cool culture stuff, you can check out our sister show, Pop Rocket. It's a roundtable discussion of everything great in popular culture hosted by the brilliant and hilarious comedian Guy Branham and featuring a panel of pop culture experts and semi-experts. You can find the show wherever you download podcasts. Just search for Pop Rocket. I guess that's about it. Just remember, all great radio hosts have a signature sign-off.